Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Magda Theodate. Magda has a background unlike anyone else I've ever interviewed. She passed the bar and became a lawyer before starting a career in procurement, and then combined both capabilities together by working first as a procurement legal consultant at the World Bank's Africa region, then as a procurement officer in its general services department. She then went on to have quite the international career and has continued to specialize in public sector procurement, focusing on the importance of essential governance for developing nations. So, hi, Magda. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for that kind introduction. Absolutely. Now, as I mentioned, you have a very unique background when I compare you to all the other people that I've spoken with. And I gave sort of a very high-level overview but I would love to have you share a little bit more detail about your background and professional experience. Sure. Look, you've had many great professionals on this podcast, so I'm actually hopeful that what we discuss will add just as much value to your listening audience as many of the ones I've heard in the past. So uh, I'm going to first tell you, before I tell you about my background, I'm going to first tell you why I got excited about procurement. I got excited about procurement when I realized it's a field that turns ideas into reality. And most lawyers will tell you that we spend a lot of time pushing paper in the legal world, and I wanted to spend time working on real issues and solving them. So procurement demands a multitude of skills, including process management, rule application, relationship building, drafting, complaint management, very similar, in fact, to what legal skills are. And it requires you to flex your brain to solve non-traditional problems, not just apply the rule book. So that brings me to my story. How did I get into this uh, unusual a career path, having been a lawyer first. So I was working at a, as a lawyer in a law firm, bored out of my mind, I must tell you. <laughs> I know the lawyers listening can relate. And a friend of mine from law school was working at the World Bank in Washington. We had a conversation and she told me that there was an idea born there to improve access to tertiary education, university education in Africa through online university level courses. But they needed to procure IT equipment, satellite access, and build partnerships with universities and governments to offer these courses at an accessible price point. So they were looking for a French-speaking consultant to help them do so, and they wanted a lawyer who understood procurement rules and could draft memorandums of understanding. Now, for your listening audience, I want to point out, please remember that back in the 90s, procurement wasn't considered, quote-unquote, hot and sexy. (laughs) So there were very few existing procurement rules for this kind of program in that region. 
And here I'd like to stop to say thank you to Mr. Etienne Baron Chamage from the World Bank. He hired me after a phone interview and told me to meet him in two weeks in Nairobi, Kenya, sight unseen. So I joined the program and I started traveling around Africa, sourcing the necessary goods and services, building partnerships with the universities, and thanking my lucky stars that the agencies my boss and I were meeting with were enthusiastic about turning ideas into reality with the funding provided from the World Bank. And then from there, I went on to have a career, as you said, internationally in Paris, France with the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Procurement, and then with the Inter-American Development Bank in Latin America and the Caribbean, based first in Washington, then in the Caribbean, managing six countries in a multi-million dollar loan and grant portfolio as lead procurement specialist. And finally, I ended up leading a procurement and trade consultancy now as director of procurement and contracts advisory services with renowned clients such as UNDP, IADB, and many others. So that's it. That's my background. And and you say that's it. So first of all, clearly procurement needed more French sooner because my own personal philosophy is that a grocery list in French is sexy, like anything in (laughs) French, right? So, um, and it's, I think the thing that's so interesting about having such a global perspective is that it does teach you to think about different types of entities in a very different way. And mm. I'll, I'll speak from my own career experience as a procurement professional working in North America. I'm not sure a lot of us would typically or naturally see the government, especially when you talk about the federal government, as an essential player in digital innovation. We tend to think of it as sort of slow and administrative red tape. You, you certainly don't think, oh my goodness, fast innovation. And yet your global experience has given you an opportunity to see that type of situation differently. Can you speak to that? First, I'll say that I'm an American, first generation, so I'll do a comparison between the United States and some of the other countries that I've had the pleasure of working with. In the U.S., for example, the wealth and influence of the private sector really overshadows that of the United States government to foster innovation. Private sector is encouraged to take risks to stimulate the economy, support job creation, develop innovative solutions to tackle issues in our society from climate change, inequality, and even exploring what's possible in space. How exactly do they do this? Well, largely through access to public procurement funds, believe it or not. Just look at big tech. IBM, Dell, the GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon, all American firms with revenue higher than the GDP of many of the world's countries. A good part of it won through contracts for defense and law enforcement. So in the U.S., if you lose, you lose. But if you win, you can win really big. In developing nations, by contrast, the government has a larger role to play than many private sector firms in developed economies. And since each country structures their economies differently, a free market economy isn't necessarily right for every context, and the viability or even the influence of the private sector has, uh, that the private sector might have in a given country, will really be based on that country's history, political alliances, geopolitical issues, more or less. So you might find that the private sector in those economies know what the challenges are and perhaps even how to fix them, but the government has to take the lead. 
first to create a space for private sector to exist successfully and engage with them, including a good regulatory framework to facilitate business, making it more comfortable to take risk because innovation is disruptive. Let's not forget that. And more importantly, there have to be incentives, and right? Those have to foster innovation in a level playing field. So although there's been a lot of progress on all those factors, particularly uh, through funding from the development banks, for example, the World Bank, uh, the EBRD in, in Europe, um, and the Inter-American Development Bank, as well as the African Development Bank and Asian Development Bank, among others. Uh, China now has its own infrastructure bank, uh, AIIB. So although there has been a lot of progress on those factors, there is still a lot of work to be done. Now, let's talk a little bit about innovation just generally. So we talked about, you know, the government's role in setting a context inside of which innovation can exist or potentially even funding or fueling innovation themselves. But if we separate it from the government context, based on your experience, do you think most people working in different roles in procurement really know what true innovation is or what it looks like or what it feels like to go through it? Mm. Excellent question. <laughs> it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And I and I hope I'm not going to show how much of a simpleton I am when I answer the question. I hope people will say, my goodness. Um, here's here's my take on this. I think that innovation and procurement still means different things to different people. And until we all identify a sort of core definition that we all agree to in the industry, I think the innovation waters could remain pretty murky, yeah. right? I've seen a bunch of work done by uh, large consulting firms, places like McKinsey, Ernst & Young, and many of the other consulting firms to try to do what I call the innovation dance, uh, quote unquote. But it's, it's really largely focused on tech stuff, fancy stuff and, and a lot of private sector uh, stuff that's expensive uh, or that could be expensive. AI, the internet of things, blockchain. I love to read and talk about blockchain, even though I'm not by any means a blockchain expert, but I do mingle with others who may be. Um, but I mean, how many entities are actually using blockchain for procuring goods or even know how to begin. I, I would love to have better clarity on that. How do we help uh, entities use, use blockchain? We all agree that it increases transparency, that it makes things uh, perhaps easier uh, for a, a private sector as well as for government, but I'm not so sure that people understand how to apply it or that it's we're now at a point where we can widely have it used. So one of the challenges about procurement modernization, and I'll focus on that one because it's posing a problem even for me, is particularly in government, is that not everyone agrees on what that means, nor how much it should cost, because of course, cost is always yeah. a factor, right? So some people think it's investments in technology, other people think it's having a strong legislative framework or rooting out corruption. And still there are others who believe it's just having standard documents and an online portal for publishing notices and awards. And as I started to say when I began to answer this question, uh, I sometimes am a simpleton. And I'll say as a simpleton, 
I think that any process improvement that saves time and money in procurement is innovative because everybody wants faster, cheaper, better. And more and more now, not only do procurement professionals and institutions and governments want that, but the general public, because they're able to buy online and they're able to interact with purchasing themselves directly, they have easy interfaces and they want to see the same thing when they go to work in procurement functions. So yes, I think that people intuitively know what innovation is in procurement. What maybe they struggle with or they may not know is how exactly do they apply it? How to do it? Well, and I think the interesting point that you raise, and I'll admit to actually falling subject to this bias all the time. We think about whether the word digital is used or not. We talk about innovation. We think about innovation the word digital is silent. Like it's always kind of there because I think societally and from a business standpoint, we're all programmed to think of all innovation as being digital, but you're absolutely right. Anything that improves our usage of money, anything that, oh my gosh, even allows us a, a small incremental additional bit of time can potentially be completely disruptively innovative. That's right. I would be interested to hear your thoughts So clearly we need to be open to a bigger, more expansive definition of innovation. How can each of us prepare ourselves to be ready for what real innovation entails? How do we recognize it when we see it? Uh, This question is even harder than the last one. (laughs) Tougher as we go, Magda. I know. It's getting progressively more difficult. Um, I mean, there are a couple of things I could say about that, but I'll tell you the truth. Firstly, I'll tell you that I struggle with it as well, even though I have more than two decades of experience in public procurement and I've worked in different organizations and and, and in different uh, geopolitical contexts. But I I still struggle with this because, you know, people, countries, society moves at different paces, right? At different paces and depending on different different factors. And so, for example, I remember when um, Jeff Bezos started with um, his space program, people were saying, you know, well, space, we shouldn't be concentrating on space. We've got all these climate issues here. And and there's, there's validity to that. But then if we all are working on only one issue, then how do we move forward in these other, on these other issues? Right? So I think if you ask a procurement practitioner, the question that you just asked me, they might say, we need to focus on any innovation that makes procurement faster, simpler, cheaper. That's what I think they'd yeah. say, right? I think, though, if you talk with policy people and government leaders, people who are whose job it is to think about the future, to be futurist, and to imagine what tomorrow might look like for our industry, I would say, especially the more gutsy ones, the ones with vision, they would say a whole of government approach to modernization and procurement is needed. And I've seen this example in the Australian government and many others as well, a whole of government approach. That includes drafting a multi-year strategy vision, for example. Some countries called it Vision 2030. Others call it uh, you know, SDG visions uh, linked with the United Nations SDGs. Um, but a strategy for, for, for the future. And then providing, I think, most services online. We need to move to that. 
and for procurement specifically, setting up framework contracts, cooperative agreements like uh, this company Co-Procure uh, or um, uh, the civic initiatives uh, that we see, civic initiatives at LLC uh, that we've seen on, online. They, they, they help facilitate, these things help facilitate business interactions with the government digitally, and they increase transparency and consistency. And I think that's what everybody's looking for. But the rest of us beyond, you know, kind of like the, the, the fancy private sector uh, companies and also the leaders or innovators in government, beyond that, the rest of us have a responsibility too. I think that it's our job not to accept the status quo. If you're working, what do I mean by that? If you're, if you're working in procurement, in a procurement department, for example, I think that if you're serious about being a professional, you should be following what's happening in cutting edge government programs like the ones in Singapore and Korea, for example. They're working on a bunch of digital innovations in procurement and other types of innovations in procurement. Um, learning what's happening in the Philippines, Kenya, Barbados on modernizing their uh, uh, procurement structures in innovative ways that don't necessarily have to do with digital. You should have heard of... Um, large uh, online procurement functions for government, Chile Compra, for example, or even ProSoro uh, over on, on, in, in Eastern Europe. So, for example, what the OECD does in competition policy and what municipalities are doing in places like California and New York and many others across the globe, for example. You, as a professional in procurement, should be following the social media of the large private firms in your own country. You should be attending webinars to understand what business offerings firms have for procurement. You should be thinking of ways to make procurement a useful tool to convert ideas into reality, not just in your organization, but in your country. Because as we've seen through the pandemic and through the crisis and, and crisis after crisis that we've been living through, through for over the last two years, these it is critical that we all start thinking outside of the box because um as as some there's there's an old saying that says um in french l'union fait la force so union or coming together is strength and so let's do that let's try to come together because we all have something we can offer to improve how procurement can innovate Following up on that point of, of sort of strength through community, I want to ask a follow-up question. You used the word gutsy before, and I think that's definitely an apt word for the moment we find ourselves in, but it's also appropriate for this place in procurement's trajectory. And I wonder sometimes, you know, when we're, whether we're looking at the easy to recognize forms of innovation that happen to be digital, or whether we're challenging ourselves to think outside of the box, even when we recognize those opportunities or the potential value of the associated change, we still have to have a healthy appetite for risk. We have to go in informed, but eyes wide open. And truthfully, I agree with you. I think we need to be the right amount of gutsy. To what extent do you think procurement's perspective on risk and risk mitigation end up holding us back from innovating? Mm, I can answer that one really easily. A lot. That's the extent. <laughs> yeah. A lot. And that's, I mean, the reality is it's not, as an industry, we're not a risk-taking industry. In fact, we encourage people to avoid risk. We do. So there's your answer. It's a lot. And and if I, if I may expand upon that, I'll say that 
present geopolitical events and disruptions linked to the pandemic are good examples. We all have to now find innovative alternatives to the alternatives we already know. But in the beginning, we wanted to kind of play it safe. Um, and we, we then realized we needed all hands on deck and we needed to think differently than we thought before, because even the emergency procurement rules went out the window That's for a right. lot of the pandemic buying. And we saw countries beginning to uh, restrict exports of, of, of health components and vaccinations. And, I mean, things that we'd never seen before and that we never would have imagined would have happened. It's all happening now. And so if you weren't comfortable with risk before, and you're now going to have to get really comfortable with it if you haven't figured that out already. So we all now have to find, you know, as I said, these, these new uh, ways, these new perspectives on risk. Procurement, excuse me, in my, in my opinion, procurement isn't a science. It's an art, and that's why we have the art of procurement as one of the, as one of the podcasts. Um, so if you took risk with your art, and that risk was rewarded, then you would take more probably, right? Conversely, if you didn't take risk and you still were rewarded, you still advanced in your career, you still got promoted, you still got seen as someone who was contributing, even though, even though you took no risk, you just followed the playbook. Or you took them and you got nothing because that happens too, yeah. because sometimes, you know, it just depends on the, on, the, on the period in life. Sometimes it's go, sometimes it's stop. So then you might think that the status quo is just fine. But I think the art is to balance finding an equilibrium between taking risks that have a positive impact and moving your organization or country forward, as I've said before, or playing it safe and just getting your SIPs or whatever certification, but not contributing to any progress. There are plenty of people doing that. And I'm not knocking it. If that's what you think you need to do and you're saying, you know, Magda, I don't know what you're talking about. You're way too risky and gutsy for me. I'll just play it safe here. Hey, that's good for you. Everyone has to move in their own comfort zone. But I, for one, went into consulting because I actually wanted to move projects forward in countries that were interested in actually doing that and needed to do it. And fortunately, I can look back on my career and say, yes, I've seen progress. Is it as much as I want? Is it as fast as I want? No. But did my work make a difference? Yes. And I, that's what I wanted. When I leave this earth, I want to be able to say I made a difference on this earth for the better. And especially in, 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 when, it, when I speak about procurement in my work specifically, I know that I made a difference on legislative frameworks, increasing transparency, and making it easier to do business. Because I think if, you're e if you make it easier to do business, you make it easier to move forward with risk and you make progress easier for all of us. Well, that's really a question of leadership, right? It's one thing to follow along somebody else's innovative idea or contribute in some small way to a larger project. It's entirely another thing to be the person who makes the decision that other people are going to be gutsy and take the sleep with you and to believe enough in your vision to say, follow me, everybody. I know this seems crazy, but I have a plan. There's this new idea that I think will give us A, B, and C benefits. What type of, how do we prepare ourselves for that? What kind of experiences or even dispositions, some of this is personal, what type of person are we looking for when we're trying to find someone that is best positioned to lead innovation? Mm, mm. Kelly, you hit it. You hit the nail on the head with that because you use the word disposition and I agree with you. Um, in my humble opinion, if I may, I would say someone who thinks out of the box and is comfortable thinking out of the box. And what I mean by that is if, if your whole life you've 
more or less follow the rules to the letter, then it may not, an innovation role may not be the right role for you because you'll think and you'll treat it as a rules role when in fact it's one that requires finding solutions where the rules don't work well. That's really what innovation is about. It's finding some way to do things differently because something's not working and you want to make it better or you want to change it. So you have to understand the spirit of the rules, just like a lawyer has to understand the spirit of the law, why it exists. But if you ask, why does this process not work? What can I do within the rules to solve this problem for my clients? How does this advance the overall well-being of my organization, my country, my work? then you can see problems with processes and you can focus on improving them. Then you have the disposition of an innovator and it's the right field for you and the right role for you. That's what I would say. And I think that's an excellent transition to the one question that I ask absolutely everybody that joins me here on The Sourcing Hero. And Magda, if you think the other questions were tough, brace. This is like (laughs) the big million dollar tough one. You know, we we call this podcast The Sourcing Hero. So obviously, we believe that there is heroism in procurement. But just like innovation, that doesn't always mean the same thing to each person or in each circumstance. So for you personally and professionally, either what does it mean to be a sourcing hero, in your opinion, or what do you think heroism looks like in a business context? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you're, you're right. That That's a tough question. The only reason I'm going to be able to answer it is because I've seen so much heroism during the pandemic. I've seen so many, and I'm not talking about the commercials you see on TV that, you know, so whatever profession yeah. you're a hero, I've seen people step forward in ways that they haven't before because it was a matter of survival, a matter of life and death, a matter of of saving people's lives and of and, and of and of saving and, and of saving our society. So um, I'll answer it this way. I think a sourcing hero is that forward-thinking person who saves the day by taking a calculated purchasing risk that results in a positive impact, which otherwise wouldn't have happened. And I'll even take it further with an analogy. A sourcing hero is kind of like Santa Claus when he picks and delivers your Christmas gifts every year. He doesn't really know if you'll love it, but he buys you something anyway. He makes a purchasing decision to get you a gift anyway. Because why? Because he knows it's better than giving you nothing at all. There you go. Well, first of all, I am so thrilled because it never once occurred to me that Santa was in procurement. So I now know <laughs> he is. we're in even better company than I ever realized. Um, but I, I like, I like your combination of talking about you know doing what needs to be done in exceptional circumstances, taking action as opposed to not taking action. We we do need to be action oriented if we want to change the way that things work if we want to improve the way that things work. Right, Kelly. And, I, and I'll and i just very quickly jump in and say, I know that there are listeners out there going, 
I would love to take action, but in my organization, I'm not encouraged to do so. Or I would love to take action, but my government is very, very conservative. I totally get that. And I'm not encouraging everyone to do it. I understand that you may not be in a position to do that. So I hear you and I support you, but where you can make a difference, try to do so. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. Now, Magda, I've thoroughly enjoyed spending the last half hour with you, and I suspect that all of the Sourcing Hero listeners have as well. If people would like to connect, follow you, learn more, reach out, what is the best way for people to get in touch? Oh, thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much. Well, I'm I'm pretty easy to connect with, especially on LinkedIn. You can look me up. M Theodate is the uh, LinkedIn handle. M for Magda and Theodate, my last name, T-H-E-O-D-A-T-E. Or via Twitter and Instagram through my handle at Global Executive Trade or Global Exec Trade, excuse me, Global Exec Trade. And, and Kelly, thank you because I'm really happy that there may be anyone interested in connecting with me on this. And please... Hopefully that your audience enjoyed this as much as I did. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.